Zechariah. Just as a reminder, we always look back and we read about Israel. Israel was a society. They were a kingdom. They were, they were a society of people supposed to operate by the laws and the principles of Yahweh. Yahweh, their, their God, revealed and given them laws and codes and ways to live. They were God's people, supposed to function according to God's leadership. But did they? Well, yeah, sometimes. But not always, and not always faithfully. Because their biggest problem was, well, it's your biggest problem, and that is we, they shared the same nature you got. So they were bound to lose sight of what they were supposed to be doing, to, uh, to succumb to temptations of all sorts. And the prophets were people sent from time to time when it was really necessary to, uh, to tell them things. And yeah, a lot of times those things were negative. Prophets were known to bring the rebuke, right? To bring the chastisement, to bring the judgment, to offer the words. And they weren't always like this, but very often we associate this with the prophets. And a common theme that you get with all of the prophets is that Israel had let the usual sins corrupt them from leadership down to the point uh, that they had reached, you know, that, that, that Israel was not the place it ought to have been to live in because, you know, just the old usual uh, apathy and, and disregard that the society winds up no longer being the place it should have been. It was not a just and righteous place throughout many of the times, uh, the years of, of her history. And there were quite a few years there. And so there weren't prophets rolling out every single day because we read across a lot of years. But we do see plenty of names, including this name, not as well known. He's among the minor prophets. No slight to him. It's just that he wrote a book not as big. It's the only reason we call them that. But here he is, Zechariah, with a harsh word from chapter 7 against the people of his time. And so it says, verse 8, And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, he says to them, Thus says Yahweh, so this is not him just giving his opinion. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, and the poor, and let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention, and they turned a stubborn shoulder and shut their ears so that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets, and therefore great anger came from the Lord of hosts. It's interesting, isn't it, that that here that name of God, Yahweh Sabaot, the Lord of hosts, used every time in this passage. Now, why might that be? It's interesting because, you know, that that's the most, uh, well, if we can say it this way, that is the most militaristic uh, name of God. That is, that's that name reminded the people that God controls vast armies that can conquer any power, and He will use it if He has to. And that's the name used here. It's almost a the prophet. I mean, he's almost, uh, you know, 
in, in, in God speaking and saying, thus says not just your God, not just Elohim, not just Yahweh, but Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of the armies, thus says him. It's like a little bit of a reminder built in. Uh, and so it, he's serious here. But they don't listen. They, they make their hearts, it says, in this translation, diamond hard. The old King James, I think, said like flint, maybe. Some translations say hard as a rock. Some say hard as the hardest stone. And some say adamant. What? Adamant stone, which was considered one of the hardest stones. You uh, could use it to, uh, uh, you know, a, a dagger would break on adamant. You know, when the... Uh, when the writers of the old Marvel comics wanted to think up met, uh, metals that couldn't, you know, that were harder than anything, uh, one of them they came up with, they named it adamantium. That's the stuff they put in Wolverine's bone. <laughs> Remember that? It was some kind of aloe. Well, where'd they get that word anyway? Well, they got that word from an ancient word. Uh, so some of your translations actually say that. So that's the emphasis on how hard the hearts were. And these are these are God's people. This is Israel. And they're just really rock hard against the idea that they were going to supposed to wake up and and pay attention to uh, to people who were having the worst of it and to care about the people. So they had this problem. Israel, we read throughout there that they're they're a chosen people. They're they were guided by God. They were called. They were created in a way by God. He took one man, made a family out of him. The family became extended. That a large family became a nation. And then he rescued them from certain slavery, who, which would have lasted who knows how long. He made them victorious in battles. Otherwise, they would not have won. All thanks to him. And so he even gave them land. They entered into choice land. He gave it to them. He said, I'll let you be a nation. They said, we want a king like everyone. He said, okay, have a king. And, and when it was all said and done, Israel was a nation, all just like the others. They had, which meant they had, a, they had a government. They had officials. In charge of things. They had an infrastructure so that a bunch of people could live. They had to have defense uh, in, in the world in which they lived. You had to have a good wall around you. And you had to have an army. You had to have all that stuff to be a nation. And they had the deeply embedded problem that every nation has. And that is they were comprised of human beings as opposed to comprised of angels they were just comprised of human beings. Everyone in Israel had the nature that you have, human nature, same nature of all people in the world. And, you know, you think about it, uh, the things in the world that are really most tragic and most problematic, that disturb you the most and that bring the most heartache to the most people, are human in origin. Now, there are things that are not human in origin. There are natural evils in the world. I mean, just uh, just just the natural process of aging and your ultimate death is one thing. No, that's you can't point at anybody for that. Um, natural disasters take place, and uh, illnesses take place, and all kinds of things take place. But those are those don't bring nearly the distress. They're not nearly as, as disturbing as the evils that people commit. The moral evils, the human evils, those those are worse. Those keep people up at night because of the idea that people would do those kinds of things. Israel, then, here's the point. Just like every nation had a lot of unrighteous and unjust treatment of people, 
by their fellow citizens. But yeah, but they were Israel. They'd be, be Wouldn't they be better? They're supposed to be better. And, and often they were, but not always. Long history. And people forget. And people, and people grow comfortable. And people get apathetic. And sometimes, actually, when life is good uh, for, for, for people, they can more easily take those things for granted. Let's look really, then at um, sort of the breakdown of what... What the Lord of hosts in this passage tells the people. What's he saying to them? Well, quickly, he says, render true judgments. Some of the translations you see, dispense true justice, your Bible might say. Execute righteous judgments. You see, Israel had courts and judges, just like every nation has courts and judges. People make the big decisions. And those courts and the people in those courts were not, they're told over and over, that they were not to take bribes to show partiality. You'll find this repeatedly. That is, they had to be fair. They had to say, we will call, as we say today, balls and strikes, like a good umpire is supposed to be unbiased. Doesn't have a team that he wants to win. He calls them like he sees them. The same for both. And the judges in Israel were supposed to show no partiality whatsoever. So guilty is guilty and innocent is innocent. Even if this is one of the people that's kind of like my people. And like I grew up with him and he's from my part of the sat town. I kind of like him. Doesn't matter. And this person over here, he's the kind of person I don't really care for too much. Never got along with those type of people. Doesn't matter. They were supposed to render true Judgments. You say, well, that's obvious. Yeah, it may sound obvious, but it's hard to do. I mean, I mean, every system of justice will will have partiality. Partiality. People are favored over other people for whatever reason. Oh, you got a lot of money? I mean, we know how this works. But render true judgments, he tells them. I'm watching you guys in robes. We often give so much mystique to the robed ones, don't we? Oh, they're just people. They're just people who went to law school and practiced on the bench a long time and got lucky and someone and they got, you know, they're not gods. They could be wrong. They're just people. And the ones in Israel were just people. And the power could go to their heads. The power could corrupt them after a while. What if you sat in the position above everyone else, up high, everyone else sits down low, and they wait to see what you will say, and you hold their fate in your hands, and you can bring down the gavel and say, get guilty or innocent, and that change, that, I mean, there's a, little bit of, there's a little bit of power in that, you know? You could sort of feel, after a while, you could start to feel your own strength, right? Like when a... Uh, like when every like every time another stone went into Thanos' little glove, feel the strength. You get power, you start to feel it. Yeah. And and of course, this all the humility of the position just goes out the window. The prophet says to them, I know who you are. I put you in that position, and you're just a regular person. So you're not God. Don't confuse you with me. That's a bad mistake. You've got to be fair. He also says, show kindness and mercy. Now, there were so often times when people were in the debt of other people. This is is common. You're in the debt of someone somewhere, probably. You owe money on anything? You're in somebody's debt. 
I mean, that's financially speaking. There are other ways to be in the debt of people besides just financially, but that's a big one. And that gives some people a little bit of an edge over other people. In Israel, one Israelite may have that position over another Israelite that you are in my debt. There was a bad crop. Something went wrong for you. You're in trouble. You need, you're now down here. And I'm up here. What then? Well, even, even like a, I mean, this may not quite get to that level, but you may be a boss or supervisor, in which case you might have the ability by way of evaluations that you give of people to determine what happens to them in the future. There, you know, it may be that what you say about them in evaluations, I mean, it might determine their pay in the future, or whether they even can work there anymore. I mean, you, you know, we have different positions, and so therefore, you know, you could be tempting to lord it over people. Jesus once told the disciples, we do not lord it over other people, like the Gentiles. Like, what he meant is, look around the world, that's, that's sort of the norm. You look around the world, people lord it over other people. Take advantage of their position, and and the people down here grovel and try to and and they and they uh, they they might offer some kind of bribes or they flatter people. You know that's how the game is played. But the prophet says, "You're to have, you, be, be merciful. Don't lord it over people just because you can." And then he says, "Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, and the poor." And I'll read this entire little paragraph here because this one is important. There are These are the categories of the most vulnerable and those easiest to exploit. Because, especially in the ancient world now, the widow could be preyed upon by unscrupulous men. The orphan was without protection uh, from particular predators that might be looking uh, for the smallest and the weakest. The foreigner stranger was a long way from home, didn't have the natural allies and, of course, the poor lacked the resources. And so he singles them out. And he says, essentially, are they not fellow Jews? Are they not Israelites? Do they not qualify as God's people? Well, what about the sojourner? Well, time and again through the prophets, Israel had to be reminded, I didn't pick you because of your genetics. You're not inherently superior to the nations around you. The only thing you have over them is me. The fact that you've been you've benefited from revelation that I have provided you and the fact that I that I have done all this for you. You have that over them, but they could have that, too, because if you were to show them that Yahweh is the true God and if they were to believe that they would get the benefits that the covenant people have. And indeed, that is supposed to be what happened. And we read places throughout the Old Testament where many in the different pagan nations would believe and join Israel and would worship Israel's God. And they would be blessed for it when they did. So this is a, note, note that this is, by the way, this is not necessarily, Zechariah is not criticizing any existing policies per se. Or he's not pointing out or specifying particulars. He's not recommending specific changes to laws that they have. He's being very general. And it's more of a command what not to do than what to do. He's not necessarily micromanaging, saying, here's exactly how the entire code 
ought to be written. Here's the best way to organize all of this. There is some, there is some maybe leeway or wiggle room. You you realize there's more than there could be more than one, um, more than one piece of legislation to accomplish a good thing. They may not all look the same, right? There's more than one way to, to get at something. So it's not necessarily being micro-organized by the prophet. He doesn't. Zechariah doesn't walk in and say, "All you officials and everybody, out! I'm I'm rewriting all the laws. I'll let you know next month when I'm done. I'm rewriting it all, starting from the ground up." He doesn't do that. It's very general. He's not saying, "Do this, do this, do this." Here's the 16 things you must do in every. Ca-. He's just saying a simple thing: Do not oppress. So it's very general. But I think they knew what it meant. They, you know, it assumes the people are sane enough to see it when they, to know it when they see it. So like whatever you're, however you're going about it, whatever your policies are, you're sort of going to know it when you see it. That someone's really taking advantage of someone else. And someone is really getting the short end. And these rules are not falling and applying in, in an equal way. So he's just saying, whatever you're doing, however you go about it, I'm watching, and I'll see it if you're exploiting somebody. I'm going to see it, and you will be judged for that. This message is repeated in many places. So i got to mention another one of the minor prophets, and that is our man Amos. Our man Amos from chapter 2. Here's some, here's some of what he says when he judges the people. A different time and circumstance, but same idea. These are famous verses from, from chapter 5. So chapter 2 he says, in judging the people for things they're doing, he says, They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same Girl, so that my holy name is profane. They lay themselves down beside every altar. Later he says, You made the Nazarites drink wine. And you commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. That doesn't sound good at all. Chapter 5 he says, You abhor him who speaks truth. You trample on the poor. You weigh him down with excessive taxes. For I know, he says in verse 12, Chapter 5, I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, you who take a bribe, you who turn aside the needy in the gate. And down in verse 24 is when he gets to let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-ending stream. When Jesus taught to people, you remember he mentioned a few times the widow and the orphan? Anybody remember that? Jesus mentioned the widow and the orphan a few times as sort of like the uh, the almost proverbial phrase to stand for the people in the vulnerable position. And there's a lot of judgment on how that worked. And so so this principle then that they've that they've that is one of these five love driven justice. You read the fuller description of it when you go to the website, you see that it's grounded they say in the fact that we value the image of God in all persons. That's the, that's the ground of it. That's the root of it. That we value the image of God in all persons. That's why deaconess pregnancy and adoption has for all these decades done this work. Valuing the image of God in all people. Well, let's talk about today. Here we are. 
The idea now of justice and equal treatment is very important to people right now. A lot of talk of it's front and center on the minds of people. You know, times change and different things come up. And you know, the societies turn like a like those old uh, toys with the what do they call those things? Yeah, the old viewmasters. Like you know, whatever your generation is, some you know, here's it. Here's our here's what we're emphasizing now. Here's what your culture presently is saying is the big deal, the most important thing. And, you know, you're just born into it. You're sort of – it comes naturally. as so, so at some point, that's come front and center in the minds of people. That, yeah, what about treating people fairly? What about justice? And it's become a big thing. And in so many ways, obviously, that is good. The motives, where they are genuine, that is good. I say where they are genuine because in, in every time and place – Whatever the thing is, it's a mixed bag of, um, of people's motives. Some people will mostly just be jumping on the bandwagon or looking, or wanting to look good or trying to fit in. And this can be true in the church, obviously. There are some people, uh, some people will flock to, um, and, you know, I, I grew up in a large church. And I know there were some people that just came around once in a while to show everyone how well they dressed, you know, uh, or to look spiritual or something. And. It's not our place to walk around um, discerning on the spot who's who, okay? God can sort out that mess, whose motives are doing what. And so in our society, maybe not everyone's motives are pure, but those who, those around us who have the genuine motivation, that, which is God-given, by the way, which is part of what we call general revelation, that is, it is natural and, and intuitive to notice some people getting mistreated and to think to yourself, that's not right. That's natural. No tablets needed from Sinai to, 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 to intuitively discern that. In many ways, then, that is good. And it shouldn't surprise us. So, as I said before, I'm never surprised at, peop- at people's basic recognition of of morally good things to understand them. And I'm never surprised at the failure to live up and at, our, and, and at, the, at the numerous times people, um, people violate their own moral codes. I mean, we expect this. It happens. But what should the church do then at a time like this? Well, quickly then. Got to be a little bit practical here. What, what do we do? How do we think about this? I say we've got to be faithful to what is right. God's people are supposed to obey God. Are they not? Israel is supposed to. The church is supposed to. So we, we, are, we must consistently be faithful to what is right. If your society is, is, is just terrible on their record of this kind of thing, and there are Christians today living in places where the, uh, the general performance of their society is abominable when it comes to their most vulnerable members. Abominable. And there, in those places in the world, the church and those in the church may face may face some real persecution if they step up and say, you can't do that. They, they may be told, they may just be persecuted right in there. The church may say, we're going to stand with the most vulnerable ones. And the, and, the, and the government or society may say, okay, you'll just get what they get. 
What about in our society? Well, you, regardless of your circumstances, you treat people the way that you have been commanded to treat people because it is right. Because it is what we are commanded to do. We show it by our actions, what it looks like. We speak like the prophets on behalf of those who may be just getting trampled under. So we're faithful no matter what. But another thing is, is as we are faithful, we, we know why. We know why. So that we don't just go along blindly with maybe a popular justice movement that may arise in your culture if, in fact, uh, if in fact there's confusion in it. You may participate alongside, but you participate from a biblical standpoint. And who knows but that as you participate, maybe your, your, the standpoint, your motives, your background, the, the, the driving force may be noticeable by other people who don't have much of a driving force, who, who are sort of unsure about their driving force, who are confused about why are we doing this? It seems like it's the right thing to do, but we're not sure why. We show that we are guided uh, by biblical teaching, not guided by whatever narratives back the popular sentiments. And by the way, here are a couple of reasons why, why we should do that. One is often a trend or a movement in, um, is short-lived when it comes along. That is, there can be what you call a cause du jour. It's just the cause of the day. It suddenly arose and everyone started talking about it. And it takes hold of popular culture and some good comes out of that. But if you're tied to it too much, then, then you will move on whenever they move on. Because they'll move on. Uh, cultures aren't, aren't very, they don't have a lot of stick-to-itiveness, especially ours. Because we're like, our culture moves fast. Trending, trending, gone, you know. Uh, viral, viral. Last week's news. They come and they go. So if you're tethered to the to the popular movement only for the sake of it being the popular movement, then when the fever dies down, you may just forget, and you'll just move on. But if it's if it was and is a a legitimate cause and a legitimate injustice you're trying to deal with, the church should have been speaking about it before the trend, and should keep speak you know remaining as committed to it long after. The masses grow bored with it. You see, because we're not just riding the roller coaster. Oh, is everyone into this cause? So, so are we. Yay, church. Oh, is everyone not into this anymore? Now we're, we're done with it too. That's not how we operate. So that's one reason why we got to discern. The other one is that they can be very narrowly focused so that a sudden trending movement may, may put really massive focus on the issue, which can be good for that issue. But it may, as I said, it may only do it for a short time. And meanwhile, some other important causes and the suffering of people outside of that focus may not get the attention that it deserves because some other some other injustices may well exist, but they just they just didn't get the you know like the focus of the week or of the month even or of the year, so that people end up suffering because they're off the radar. But the church has to have a bigger radar. And sometimes the church is a lone voice. Uh, we, you know, sometimes we have these emphasis on a Sunday where we'll look at human trafficking. Well, there are some people committed to that, but it's it's it sort of comes and goes, you know. But the trafficking keeps taking place. I mean, those guys don't, you know, the the people who are oppressing those people and trading them off and selling them and taking them across borders and all that stuff, they don't they don't take any days off. That continues, and it continues whether we're focused on it or not. So the church has to be kind of 
consistent. And of course, it's not exactly popular to be terribly concerned about the slaughter of human beings prior to birth. That's just not a cause that the culture is really on board with. The church has been on has been on that for a while, uh, and it kind of you know does this and but but that one if we only if we only rode the bandwagon of what society is doing, we might hardly ever notice this one. We certainly wouldn't have a day like today where we're thinking about it because that's not a cause that's widely popular. And then the third one is reason I wanted to say is why we why we are discerning as, as Jesus, full of grace and truth. That many causes that come along in society at large may carry with them or have embedded in them false beliefs and frankly false religion. And Israel was not permitted and should not never have joined anything that would have brought with it idolatry or violation of the laws of God or forgetting the truth of Yahweh or the worship of the true God. So we've got to have discernment so as not to take on board the errors of some movements or and, and try to incorporate them into our system of belief and that will go haywire. So it is possible to share common moral concern for grave injustices without taking into, into the body um, foolishness that then somehow adjusts your overall perspective, gives you a really confused theology, um, tweaks sort of the Christian understanding of things in, in, in ways that you're trying to align with falsehoods, and that can't happen, so that the church can then show the example. Last year, I spent some weeks talking about some of the popular movements so that we could sort of see the difference between sort of the historic Christian view of these things versus maybe kind of like, you know, Johnny come lately causes and where they're coming from. Some couple of people have asked about it since then. Um, you can find the audio, by the way, of those when we spent Wednesdays doing that. Somebody remember? Find the audio for it on the website under uh, under where it says media, not in sermons because those weren't sermons. There was like a Wednesday night class we were doing. You know, it's fairly you know, it was fairly intense. Went quite a ways through, but you can look at it. It's there. Under somewhere in there, and then at the bottom, I think of under the media category. At the very bottom is actually a document with a lo- many, many pages length uh, notes that I was using on on the topic of uh, critical theory and what what sort of the popular movement of today, because discernment is important. It's interesting that you know you will sometimes. Uh, you'll sometimes be worried. We can, we can easily be worried what everyone's thinking about how we're doing this more than what the God of hosts thinks we're doing about this. We don't answer to even fellow Christians that might say do it this way. We don't answer certainly to you know what's trending here you know across the social media platform. We don't answer to any of that. We answer to God and the prophets. Brought the same message over and over. Don't forget who who got you here, who planted you here, who gave you the law by which you everything that you have, everything that everything that has set you apart. He he's watching, and and he is not he is not you know grown weary or he's not just grown tired of watching. He isn't isn't. Uh, you know he doesn't. He doesn't get bored with it. 
He's always watching. I mean, he is ever concerned about the plight of all the peoples. He doesn't love you more than he loves them. Right? So, so as James told the church, whoever walks through your doors, you've got to see them as exactly the same. And that was not always easy in the first century. It's not always easy now. But the church, frankly, ought to be, you know, ought to be the most out front. Sometimes I think Christians will think this. They may look at popular movements and they may say, if they, if they, if they look deeper, they may say, I, I look at these movements and I see a lot of problems in terms of some of the fundamental beliefs. And so the response then is, well, I'm not part of that and I want no part of that. So all this business about justice I hear everywhere, that's not my thing. We're not in that game. But that's the wrong response. Not only are we in that game, we worship the one who invented the very notion and concept of that game. For what do these words mean, even? From when un, unmoored and untethered from the foundations of the image of God and of the basic fundamental moral laws that God has revealed. What do they even mean outside of that? Wilberforce, when he's in the middle of his fight for stopping the trading of the slaves, some of the apathetic Anglican Christians said, he's a fanatic. And of course, Wilberforce famously replied, and he said, if to be feelingly alive to the sufferings of my fellow creatures makes me a fanatic, then I will be the most incurable fanatic ever permitted to be at large so that Christians ought to be the real social justice warriors, if you will, out front, zealously and sacrificially doing it because the God of hosts says so. So today, Sanctity of Life Sunday, we commit ourselves to this, as always we should to the issue of love-driven justice as commanded by Jesus himself, the Lord himself. Because no one outranks him. He simplified it all, did he not? To the greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God. Love all the people.